I want to continue tonight in Revelation chapter 17 with the Song of the Lamb part 2. We have a very striking contrast between um, chapter 15 and chapter 16. In chapter 15, you see one of the most incredible worship services that is seen anywhere in Scripture. You see a worship service that consists of the people of God right here at the very end of the Great Tribulation. We see the the people of God in heaven, those who have been martyred for the testimony of Jesus Christ standing before the throne. They are given harps of God uh, directly from Him Himself. Must be some incredible instruments and they are participating in a praise service that is led by none less, according to the book of Hebrews, than Jesus Christ Himself. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Same song. Song that was, at this point in time, right now, written at least 3,500 years from its beginning to its end. A song that proclaims the beginning of the covenant in the midst of the people of Israel that will corporately bring about the whole earth being blessed through them in the song of the Lamb, the consummation of that covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. It is an incredible worship service. It seems to be somewhat out of place by human standards. You would think that you would place chapter 15 after chapter 16, after it is finished, after the wrath has come, not on the immediate eve of its coming, but the reality is is for those who have looked Jesus Christ face to face, they see fully as they themselves are fully seen. They know fully as they themselves are fully known. And their will has been perfectly sanctified, perfectly aligned to be in His will. And if He is satisfied, then they are satisfied. Indeed, that is the case. For praise flows from before the throne on the day of His righteous wrath. And in chapter 16, and I'm just going to read the first 16 verses here real quick, and we're going to try to cover this pretty quick, uh, seeing how this is a manner of review. In chapter 16 and verse 1, it says that, well, I'll tell you what, let's back up to verse 7 of chapter 15. gives us the context we need. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. 
And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed, literally they blasphemo. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he might go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Well, we see the command for the seven bowls of wrath that is the end of the wrath of God coming directly from the temple itself. And the command is from God Himself. As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, verse 8, we see that all others have been excluded from the temple until the judgment of the seven bowls are complete. Now, it doesn't take a very um, doesn't take too deep of a knowledge of Scripture to see the similarities between the bowl plagues and the plagues of Egypt: water to blood, and boils, and frogs, and darkness, etc. This theme continues from Revelation 15 with the singing of the Song of Moses. I mean, here you have this worship service. They're calling back, singing to the Song of Moses. Here comes these seven bowls that they are worshiping over this judgment of the Lord that is to come. And what comes out of those bowls is very reminiscent of the same plagues that the Lord sent upon Egypt when Moses went preaching to them to let his people go the first time, but we want to make sure that we don't get the cart before the horse here because it seems like a lot of commentators do. Similarities occur between the bowls and the exodus not because the consummation of the covenant is a testimony or reflection of its beginning, but instead because the covenant events of the exodus were from the very start a copy and reflection of the true spiritual realities of heaven according to Hebrews chapter 8. And so because these things are real and eternal and going to be ultimately manifest in time, we see the testimony of that when the covenant is first being established corporately among men in the events of the Exodus. Man, if there is ever a picture of what the Antichrist looks like, if there is ever a picture of what the seven years of God's wrath looks like is unfolding on a kingdom of lawlessness, it's the events that occur in Egypt with the Exodus. Therefore, it is not surprising that the final realities are much more severe than their initial shadows and reflections. What was poured out on a single nation is now being poured out on the entire world. What was poured out on a man that was an archetype of the Antichrist residing over a finite kingdom of darkness is now, well, it's still a finite kingdom of darkness, it's just a much more massively one. Is now being poured out 
upon the entirety of this present darkness and the rundown is pretty straightforward you know you can try to read a lot into this but i don't think we should and the reason i don't think we should is because the tone that is struck in chapter 16 is a very rapid fire kind of scenario when you compare what's going on here in chapter 16 with the judgments that have come previously where you get a whole lot of explanation and all this information about how this judgment's unfolding what's going on with this trumpet and 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 what's going on with this seal and all these sorts of things man this is just bang 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 it's because this is coming at the end It was announced in heaven with these judgments, the wrath of God has come to its completion. It has come to its perfection. And much like a stone rolling downhill, the farther it rolls, the faster it rolls. Bowl number one is poured out upon the earth and it causes harmful and painful sores. Literally in the Greek, this is wicked or malicious sores as not ought to be. Now, if you, I've unfortunately, I've gotten there a couple times. You can get there a couple different ways on YouTube. Uh, one of the ways you can get there is looking up um, mission field, frontline mission field stuff. There are a lot of videos on YouTube of some pretty nasty sores being dealt with, and a lot of them in the context of mission field ministry. And I don't know if you've seen what it looks like when a boil is unintended to, but it is some bad, bad stuff. And if you've got natural boils that are bad enough, but ought to be, and here you have a wicked, malicious boil that is the work of God that literally in the Greek ought not to be, I don't know how bad of a boil that is, but I'm guessing based off the stuff that you see on YouTube, it's real bad. The Septuagint uses the same words to describe the boils of Job and of the Exodus. Job chapter 2, verse 7, where he's sitting in the ash heap, scraping himself and his wife tells him that he's in such bad shape that it would really be merciful to himself if he would just curse God and die. It's the same thing that happens to the Egyptians when Moses takes handfuls of soot from the kiln and throws it into the air and the boils descend upon the people. If natural boils are bad, I would ask you, how bad are supernaturally unnatural boils? And if they're bad... If the supernatural foreshadowing of the boils in the Exodus were that bad, how bad will their full reality be when the wrath of God is brought to completion? I would have you note in the text that the boils only fall upon the worshipers of the beast and those who have taken the mark of his name. The Lord brings his own through this wrath unscathed. But he's not finished. Immediately thereafter comes the wrath of the second bowl. There is no way to tell in Scripture, and I start getting real nervous when people try to tell me that there is, there is no way that I have found to tell in Scripture with any legitimate exegetical endeavor to tell you how long from beginning to end the bowl judgments take. But it seems to be really, really fast. And if a guy was going to suggest that it all happened in a single day, I would say that that would certainly be an assumption that should be considered in the ballpark. This could very well all be in the singular day of the Lord. But one thing that is clear is it is quick, it is rapid, and it is brutal. The second bowl immediately follows it. And instead of being poured out on man, it's poured out on the sea. It says it causes the sea to become like the like blood, but not just any blood, like the blood of a corpse. 
congealed black thick okay this is this is not the picture of Charlton Heston pouring the bowl out on the Nile and it all turns like bright red like Kool-Aid no this is like some nasty sticky gloopy kind of stuff this is the death of everything in the ocean it says the end of seafaring as we know it and what kind of kinetic effect you would get from the tides I have no idea once again it is similar but it is more severe than the testimony that was in Egypt it is even more severe than the earlier judgment of the second trumpet where only a third of the sea was affected now its entirety is but he's not done with the second bowl he comes to the third Salt water was not enough. This is poured out upon the springs and upon the rivers, causing fresh water to become blood. At this point in time, there is nothing to drink. Scripture is clear that it is an absolute effect. You have every single bit of water that is available on the planet, both the salt water in the ocean and the fresh water in the rivers and the springs boiling up out of the earth. There is no water. This can't last very long. Humans can't go very long without water, especially when the sun is about to get turned up to the broil setting, which is what's coming. This deal is happening like now. I was reading this week um, a little bit about the crisis that is kind of quietly unfolding that no one has really talked very much about in the news. It gets mentioned, but the crisis that's unfolding right now on the Colorado River Basin at Lake Mead. It has the potential to take this little thin supply chain economy that we have that's already stressed and just blow it up. Right now, the largest man-made reservoir in the United States that serves tens of millions of people in the American Southwest and hundreds of millions of people through the production of crops throughout the United States is at 19% of its capacity and is currently 100 foot lower than even the worst projections from last year were. Man, that thing's drying up. They've turned on the last pumping station. If this one gets to where it's sucking air, Vegas don't get any more water. not just people running out of water the prices of food will go through the roof i mean this this is the lake that waters the san joaquin valley you like asparagus and strawberries and squash and tomatoes and that kind of stuff Mm-mm. not only that man when people can't drink guess what they'll leave they'll deal with rolling brownouts they'll, they'll deal with that kind of stuff when there's no water they're out of there and guess where they're coming to a zip code near you and then all your stuff's going to be pressed as well man no water's a deal i mean throughout scripture you look drought is the judgment of god upon entire civilizations and it destroys them we still can't figure out how to deal with it man all of our technology we can stretch it further we can be more responsible but at the end of the day if there's not enough there's just not enough and at this point in time There's none. There's no salt water. There's no fresh water. There's no water in the rivers. There's no water bubbling up out of the ground in the springs. The wrath of God is upon them to their destruction. The saints call out from the altar saying that what they get is absolutely just. But no water is just the beginning of the problem because now the heat's going to rise. Bowl number four is poured out on the sun and it causes fierce heat that scorches men with fire. And for the
for the first time, we see the response of men. It seems to flow that this is coming so fast that they're reeling and haven't had a chance to respond. The first mention of mankind's response to the bold judgments indicates the rapid succession of the first four bowls. This is their first opportunity to respond and what they respond with is the opposite of repentance, the opposite of giving Him glory. Instead, they curse Him, they blaspheme His name, they contradict, they revile Him, they hate Him because of what He is doing in justice. The fear of the Lord, as we've seen in the book of Amos, quoting there out of Hosea about what happens when the Lord roars forth from Zion. Man, the fear of the Lord causes some men to draw near. It causes other men to flee. It causes His people to turn to Him trembling for the only one who has an answer. It causes those who are not His people to harden their heart in rebellion regardless of the consequences for them. Bowl number five is poured out upon the throne of the beast himself. This does not simply affect his kingdom through secondary means of, of, of stressing his people and destroying his economies and his ability to wage war. This directly affects the seat of his power. At the end of the day, whether you want to reference Job 1 and 2 or, or, or Satan arguing you know, with, um, with Michael over the body of Moses or, or Satan attempting to tempt Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, he only goes as far as he is allowed. His power has a definite limit that is set by the Creator that he so desperately wants to overthrow. It is poured out on the throne of the beast and it causes the kingdom of the beast to be plunged in to darkness as goes the king so goes the kingdom this darkness is associated in Joel chapter 2 verse 1 through 2 with the day of the Lord which is now nearly immediately around the corner blow a trumpet in Zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of all the generations. The darkness, it says, intensifies their pain. Yeah. Everything you see here tends to follow a pattern of being a supernatural reality that is an amplified version of a natural reality. Whether it be the pain of the unnatural wicked boils being so much more than that of a natural boil or here with the darkness. If you've ever been in significant physical pain, if you've ever sat with anybody that is in significant physical pain, and I mean the kind that are just about put you out of your head, you know, man, the longer the darkness wears on, the worse it gets. The worse it gets. The crazier it gets. The more evil it gets. They call it the witching hour for a reason. Man, they can't take it. It says they gnaw their tongues in an attempt to get away from the pain, but they do not repent. But instead, once again, they curse the Lord 
that is the only one that could be their hope. And then in with the sixth bowl comes the preparation for the day that Joel was talking about when just crawling like blackness on the mountains is an army outside of Jerusalem like no one has ever seen and never will be again. The sixth bowl is poured out on the river Euphrates and it is dried up to make way for the kings of the east. Those who come from the east of Jerusalem, from modern day areas like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan, the steppes below Russia, they come to wage war against God and to wage war against His people. They are drawn up to battle against the Lord, all the kings of the world. By the very means that these spirits perform, they are brought to Armageddon the valley of Megiddo. Interestingly enough, it is this very tell, this hill at Megiddo that stands watch over the valley where King Solomon kept his stables and the greatest portion of his chariot forces. It was here that the wisest king that ever lived, the wisest man to ever sit on the throne of Israel apart from Jesus Christ Himself, surveyed the land, considered the threats that would come from all of the kingdom of darkness that was set against Him, and said, guys, of all the places we need to be, this right here is where you make your stand to fight. Napoleon called it the greatest battlefield that his eyes had ever laid, that he had ever laid his eyes on. Solomon knew the gates to his chariot city are still there. He knew that one day it was coming. He did the best he could to prepare, but you cannot prepare for what is going to happen here. It's spoken of in Joel chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Where the Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat literally means Yahweh judges. Bring them down to the valley of Megiddo. That's geographically what it's called. But let me tell you what it's going to be called. It's going to be called Yahweh judges because spiritually that's what is about to happen. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Ought to sound familiar to some of the stuff we've been at in Amos. All of this stuff has its roots in the same place. I mean, there, you know, look, you may not have a more complete picture of the entirety of the tribulation than you have in the Exodus, but it is far from the only picture of the kingdom of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness and the war that he fights against a holy God. It's certainly not the only picture of that you see in Scripture. I mean, we can go to Daniel and we see it over and over and over. We see it in Babylon. We see it in Medo-Persia. We see it in in um, Greece, we, we see it in the Romans. We, we see it particularly in individual men like Antiochus Epiphanes who slaughtered a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, sat down in the Holy of Holies and proclaimed himself to be God. I mean, this is the archetype of the Antichrist. And like we've talked about before, the reason that you see these over and over and over in men like Nero and men like Adolf Hitler is because God is immutable and does not change and Satan won't 
And so when you see them interact, you always get a predictable result. We have come to that result's ultimate conclusion. But you see this all over Scripture. And you saw it with Jeroboam the first. He raised up a counterfeit God. He said, man, this whole deal with Jerusalem and paying homage and going down there, that's not going to work for us. We're going to have something different. We're going to replace him with a God of our own making. Here's a couple of calves. This, O Israel, is thy God that led you out of Egypt. And what comes out of that is the rise of wickedness when the holy standard has been removed that displayed itself in very particular ways. The oppression of the weak, rampant sexual immorality, and the combination of all of these things and the expression of demonic worship. It's exactly the kind of stuff that you're seeing described in Joel chapter 3. They all have their roots in the same place. So they all end up producing the same results. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Felicia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. And in Jehoshaphat, at Yahweh judges, he will do exactly that. Here we see a call for the perseverance of the saints. The Lord says, be awake. Keep your garments on. Sleep with your boots on. Your sword in your hand day of his wrath has come. Then we get to the seventh bowl. And with it the end. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Man, this isn't this isn't on the water, this isn't um, on the streams, you know, it's not on the oceans, it's not on the streams, it's not on the throne of the beast. Man, this is this is something that It applies to the entirety of the world. It's like that old Sherwin-Williams logo. (laughs) There's the ball. (laughs) The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. The voice of God Himself saying, It is done. It is finished. Exact same thing Jesus said on the cross. It was one in that moment. It is being executed in this one. It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. So great was that earthquake. I'm sorry. Flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city, being Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people and they cursed God for the plague and the hail because the plague was so severe. What in the world causes an earthquake that bad? Guys, Jerusalem is is not Memphis, Tennessee. You know, they say that with modern construction being the way it is in the waterfront in Memphis, that if the New Madrid fault was to let go the way it did, what, 
300 years ago, maybe a little earlier than that, I can't remember exactly, maybe a little less, if it was to let go the way it did then, that sizable portions, like, like seriously, like 20% of western Memphis would literally slide off into the Mississippi River. Like that's not a, you know, they used to, you know, you hear the joke when I was a kid, you don't hear it so much anymore. One of these days, you know, one of these days, San Andreas Fault's going to let go and California's going to slide off into the ocean. Not actually. Memphis will actually slide off into the Mississippi River. It's just gone, man. It's built on silt. If you ever been down to Mud Island, they call it Mud Island for a reason. You start shaking that thing, she's a bowl of jello, man. It's gone. Next thing you know, it'll be floating, <laughs> it'll be floating past Royal Street, <laughs> headed through New Orleans and right out into the Gulf. Man, that's not New Orleans. New Orleans is the house built on a rock. It's just one giant chunk. <coughs> just, just one huge block of limestone that that city is built on and built out of. And this quake splits that thing into three parts like a sledgehammer. The city's of the nation's fall. What in the world would cause such an earthquake? The answer is given to us in Zechariah chapter 14. And it is nothing less than the feet of Christ Himself upon the Mount of Olives. If you're familiar with the book of Zechariah, you know that in chapter 12 is recorded the events that immediately precede this. In chapter 12, you see the splitting of the eastern sky and the people of Israel gazing on Him whom they've pierced. Looking at the return of Christ and in that moment being provoked to jealousy. Romans chapter 10 and 11 being provoked to jealousy by the faithfulness of the Gentile church faithfulness that you see being put under severe test in Revelation chapter 12 when he couldn't get to the Jews. He turned his eye, the dragon who had been cast down to you in great anger because he knows his time is short. He turned his eye to the other seed of the woman, the followers of the testimony of Jesus Christ, man. And you know the command to stand firm. And here is the call for the endurance of the saints. If one is to go to captivity, to captivity he goes. If he's to die by the sword, by the sword he must be slain. Their faithfulness in that hour has now come to its fruition. They have looked on Him whom they've pierced. The Jews have realized this was supposed to be their promise, not just a Gentile promise. The Gentiles were supposed to get it through them and they've been excluded and great jealousy they mourn and the Lord opens up a fountain of mercy and grace and He gives them a new heart and in a moment all of living Israel is saved but the Lord is not through yet because as we've so often said if you're going to be saved there's got to be something to be saved from and He has brought with Him the contempt of His wrath the very thing if men are going to be saved, they must be saved from. And having saved His elect people in Israel, and having preserved His elect among the Gentiles unto this moment, then the feet of Jesus Christ stand on the Mount of Olives. And it's not to preach a sermon. 
Well, maybe it is. But it's not a sermon that would call you not a sermon that would call you in repentance to the sprinkling with His blood. It's a sermon that in wrath is going to splatter His robes with His enemy's blood. In chapter 14, it's described like this. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. He did that with the sixth bowl right up the river Euphrates, sent out these three spirits in the earth to do these signs to draw all these kings to battle. The city shall be taken and the house is plundered and the women raped and half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. Guys, that's a big chunk of rock. I thought Mike Pedigree was going down on us the day we hopped up that thing. It's a big chunk of rock. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all of his holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. Comes to reign. He comes to save his people. He comes to destroy his enemies and destroy him. He does. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell securely, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against, the, against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths." Now, what do you think that tastes like when your own tongue rots in your mouth? What do you think happens to your vision when your own eyeballs rot in their sockets? This is the best I can tell the polar opposite of the glorification of the saints. This is the opposite of the resurrection. This is the opposite of 
life from death. This is death from life while you're still standing on your own two feet. On that day, a great panic. Yeah, I guess so. A great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each one will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance, just like they did to the Egyptians. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. And then everyone who survives of all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be a plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, There shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of their sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That reality... that so many pastors want to kind of skip over when they're given communion because it's such an unsettling thought. That here in the Lord's kingdom at His own table, the hand of the betrayer is on the table with Him. In that day, it's over. Sanctification has come to its full end. The refining fire that is Jesus Christ has consumed all that was wood, hay, or stubble in His people, leaving only the very work of God and gold, silver, and precious jewels behind. He has destroyed His enemies. He has subjugated the creation. And He will rule without a traitor in His midst. All of this on the day of the Lord. All of this when Babylon the Great is destroyed the description of which will follow in chapter 17 all the way through 19. Man, I didn't realize how late I was. Sorry guys, I forgot about the clock. Um, Alrighty. Anthony, why don't you pray for us, man?